Welcome to the Business Leader Podcast. My name is Serena, and today our guest is the founder of Enter the Arena, a business coaching company that aims to empower female business owners in investment. She is a serial entrepreneur and an expert in raising investment and scaling businesses. She is also the recent author of the book, Raise, the female founder's guide to securing investment. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to receive the latest episodes. We'd love to hear your feedback. Email questions at businessleader.co.uk to get in touch. And now it's time to welcome Julia Elliott Brown to the podcast. Welcome, Julia. It's lovely to have you on the podcast today. Hi, it's great to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Great. So just to start us off, I would love to hear a bit about your journey up until this point and sort of how you got into business in the first place. What does that journey look like for you? Well, I guess I always wanted to go into business. I had this dream as a young girl of kind of, you know, walking around in London with a business suit on and a, and a briefcase. So it was always something I wanted to do. I did business studies at university. And when I left university, I joined a graduate scheme at Reuters. Um, so was working kind of in the world of investment banking with IT support and data support, looking after big clients like Morgan Stanley and uh, Deutsche Bank. So I kind of got into that whole world of kind of investment reasonably early on, but as a service provider. But I very much felt quite early on in my career that although I loved working for a big organisation and, and I had some incredible experiences and learned an awful lot in that big corporate environment, I felt a real draw to working in the startup industry. It was around the time when the whole kind of dot-com thing was taking off in the late 90s. And I, and I really felt compelled to kind of go and work in a more exciting and a new and innovative environment where I could make more of an impact. So in my mid-20s, I joined um, the dot-com pioneer at mystreet.com as business development manager. And actually, within a few years, I was running that business as a subsidiary of uswitch.com, who, who bought the business. So age 27, I was running up mystreet.com. I had a million unique users, um, had a reasonably big team. It was super exciting in the heady days of, of startups and dot-coms. And I guess, you know, that's the, that's where I really got the bug for kind of entrepreneurialism. Um, I worked in a couple of other businesses after that. I then set up my own consultancy business to support SMEs in, in getting into the digital world and also consulting for some businesses who were getting into Web 2.0, as it was called then, when social media was taking off. And it was there that I had the idea for my last entrepreneurial business, which I set up with my sister, which was called Upper Street. And that business was a design your own um, shoe company, so a fashion tech business. And, and that was where I had my own really big startup journey, I guess. That was the first, you know, bit where I really felt like I was becoming an entrepreneur. That's, uh, yeah, certainly a very varied experience of business, for sure. But by the sounds of it, you decided and realized that you wanted to go into business from quite a young age, because a lot of business owners might go to university and, and study something completely different and eventually end up in business by chance. But what was your reason or motivation for going into business at such a young age? Did you have role models whilst you were younger? Was business a part of your life in any other way in those early years? You know, not really. I mean, I don't come from an entrepreneurial family. 
Um, but I think as a young girl, you know, my dad was quite influential on some of this stuff and he very much helped me to believe that I could achieve anything. And he always said to me, you should do an MBA one day. I mean, this was when I was kind of, you know, 11, 12, <laughs> didn't even really know what an MBA was. Um, and my dad unfortunately passed away when I was 15. And that, that's probably quite a pivotal moment in my life because I think I always remember that advice he gave me. You know, he said, oh, you could be chairwoman of ICI one day if you want to be and do an MBA. So that's stuck, stuck in my mind. And I had some, you know, really great work experience as well as, as a teenager where I worked in businesses. I worked in um, in restaurants, in catering. Um, I did a, a, a scheme with Shell during the summer. Um, I worked in a in a business where they manufactured toilet rolls <laughs> and sold them everywhere. So I kind of had some really good experiences working in businesses. And I think I've always been a, a natural leader and so good at kind of bringing things together and making them happen. So it just felt really natural for me to go into business. What would you say was the aspect of business that really lit a fire in you to motivate you to then go on to help business owners achieve what they want to achieve and make business a part of your life even outside of being an entrepreneur yourself? I think at the heart of it is being a problem solver and I think all entrepreneurs are great problem solvers and that's about whether you you see a, a gap in the market where there's an opportunity or whether it's helping your team function more effectively and wanting to solve that I'm constantly seeing problems around me that need solving and a business allows you to do that in so many ways. So it's a great, I mean, it's an interesting question, you know, why didn't I go into problem solving in other ways that were non, non-business? I don't really know the answer to that actually, Serena, but yeah, I think it, it, at the heart of it is solving problems. And I think when, when it comes to business, that gives you the opportunity to solve problems potentially on quite a big level and make a really big difference and make, make a big impact and if I look at my core values, which I don't think really have changed a lot over the years, making a difference is probably number one. Learning, constantly learning. I mean, when you're building a business, there's not a day goes by when you're not learning something. Making connections. And you can't do business unless you can make connections really well, build relationships, bring great people along with you. And also having fun. I find business really fun. I mean, I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm as happy being lost in a spreadsheet as I am going out talking to the media or writing a business plan. You know, I, I strangely actually find these things quite enjoyable. <laughs> and when it comes to problem solving and building those skills, you primarily help female founders to build their business and understand particularly how to achieve investment, which has been something that female founders have in particular had barriers around them into being able to achieve that. So it's definitely a space within business that does need a lot of attention and help. Why do you feel as though this is an area that needs particular attention? When I started my current business, Enter the Arena, which is actually seven years ago, it was then that I felt there was a real issue there. And that was really born from my own experiences as a female founder, um, raising investment for the fashion tech brand that I started back in 2010, uh, which was a seven-year journey too. Um, 
so for that business, I raised £2 million pounds of investment um, from angel investors, from the bank, from venture capital funds, through crowdfunding. I mean, you, you name it, I got the T-shirt. And that experience I went through myself as a female founder really opened my eyes to the challenges of raising investment anyway for any founders, but the, the, the different level of challenges that female founders face. And the shocking statistics about how little funding goes to female founders. I mean, globally, it's less than 2%. Um, and it's it's actually almost one only 1% of female founder-led businesses in the UK getting venture funding. It's a huge issue that I don't think gets enough exposure. And we only get maybe 6% of scale-up businesses being run by women. And we cannot have a situation where the businesses of the future you know, where we don't have diversity because the consumer base is diverse. You know, 51% of consumers are women. So there's a massive there's a massive disjoint. And I felt very compelled seven years ago to do my part to solve that problem and support those female founders on that journey to raise investment and scale with all the challenges that they face. And, I th- and, and you know, seven years later, there is a lot more noise in the ecosystem around supporting female founders a lot more women coming through which is amazing to see but the dial in terms of how much funding goes to those women really hasn't moved so there is a big big issue that needs solving that's really interesting because I feel as though that hints at even if there are more women going into business and starting their own business, ultimately it's a structural issue and it's an issue within society and the way that it's structured that is impacting the opportunities these female founders have. So if it is a structural issue, how can female founders or founders go about navigating this if there are just really harsh barriers to their entry and into them scaling their businesses? It's a great question. I think, you know, structural issues are a big part of this and the industry is working very hard to try and dismantle those issues. But you're right. In the meantime, female founders still have to find a way to navigate those issues because otherwise we won't get anywhere. And how do women do that? I mean, a huge part of it is about empowering themselves with the knowledge and the skills and the support they need to be successful at raising investment. You know, it's a a complex world. And I think a lot of female founders look at the world of investment and kind of go, oh, my God, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know what it means. It's a very male dominated industry. It's quite off putting. And can I take the risk? Am I prepared to do that? Is this really what I want? And I think the danger is that that lack of knowledge and understanding can sometimes put female founders off going for it in the first place. So I think that the first thing to do is to to get, you know, get the knowledge and the skills you need to raise investment are, you know, there are many and they're all great skills to develop as a business leader. I think most founders don't realise at the beginning of their journey how important raising investment is. Um, if you're building a high growth business. So those skills are around business strategy and making sure that you can put put together a great plan for growth. They are financial skills. So understanding how to build a really robust and well thought through financial forecast, how to work out how much money you need to raise, how to work out your valuation. Those are skills you need to gem up on. 
communication skills is massive. And investors are like any audience that you speak to. When you're communicating, a big part of it is understanding your audience. And so it's about learning to speak the language of investors, which for many female founders can be a very foreign language, um, especially if you haven't come from an environment where you've worked with a lot of men. You know, if you're not coming from a STEM background and you're in a very female focused space, suddenly going out and talking to, you know, the men in suits, <laughs> I say that with quote marks, you know, it can be quite challenging. So learning the language of investors, learning how to tell your story in a really compelling way to cut through, because there are so many great businesses out there trying to find investment. If you can't cut through that noise, you're going to struggle. And skills around how to have great meetings with investors, how to close their commitment. Some of that is sales skills, again, which not everybody has. Naturally, you've got to develop those sales skills. Negotiation skills so that we negotiate really great deals with investors in terms of the right valuation and all the deal terms that come with that to make sure that we build businesses that create real value in the future and, and don't get kind of um, done over in the process. So there are quite a lot of skills you have to develop to be good at fundraising. And so we have to step into our power on that. These are all skills that I think all founders are capable of, of developing. And the sooner we start developing those skills, the better. You mentioned there one of the challenges that female founders may face is if they haven't been in male spaces before, which business and investment is predominantly a male-dominated space. This could be a challenge for them because it can be intimidating. And so if you are a female founder and you haven't found yourself in, in male spaces in your previous work, how can you build your confidence and deal with that feeling of feeling intimidated in those situations? How, what advice do you usually give to your female founders that you work with? Well, I think it's really important to spend time stepping into the shoes of, of an investor and imagining what it might be like to be an investor and the challenges and pressures that they face. I think too often there's a feeling of them and us. You know, a lot of founders kind of feel that they're having to go to investors with a begging bowl, kind of asking for money. And actually, if we can switch our mindset to understand that investors need great founders as much as we need great investors, that's the first stage. But understand that those investors, you know, if they're working for an institutional investor, so a venture capital firm or private equity they have a mandate to invest in companies and they have a mandate to find great companies and they have a lot of pressure themselves to perform. You know, so they are, they have their own stresses around, you know, should I be an investor in this founder? If I put my money into this founder, can I trust them? Do I really believe that they're going to give me a great return on investment? So seeing that they have their own worries and concerns is really helpful. If it's an angel investor where they're investing their own money, they don't have an imperative to invest that money in founders. They could put it in lots of other places. So again, they're just people like you and me who are trying to make sensible decisions with their money. And so if we can see them as human beings, not just these scary investors that sit in ivory towers, which to be honest with you, most of them aren't, that really, really helps. Investors' problem is that they're trying to find a great place to put their money where they can make a return on investment over a certain period of time. 
And they're also looking for businesses which resonate them with where they feel they're going to make a difference. They think with both their head and their heart. So as a founder, if you can help make that connection in terms of the emotional connection with your business and what that investor is looking for, and also the rational decision, the head part, where they're looking at how they can make money from it, that's really, really helpful. The more we ask investors questions, the more we will learn about them. There's this kind of assumption that as a, as a founder, you have to go in and pitch to an investor. And that conjures up this image of you sort of walking into this scary room and opening your PowerPoint presentation and talking at investors. And actually, we need to see it as a conversation. We need to see it as a win-win. And actually, by asking investors questions and doing that right at the start, you know, what kind of businesses do you like to invest in? Which companies that have you invested in that have gone really well? What makes a good investment for you? Where have things gone wrong? And what do you think should have been done differently? Helps you understand what their background is, what they're looking for. And so then it leads much more naturally into a conversation where you're feeling relaxed and feeling less about them and us. In terms of the types of female-owned businesses that are achieving a lot of investment, is there a specific sector where female businesses are doing particularly well in that you've noticed at the moment? Uh, What have you noticed in terms of how female-owned businesses are doing across all industries? I mean, there are certain sectors where you see a lot more female founders coming through which are sectors like fashion, cosmetics, femtech, edtech, building businesses that are for women. You know, you see a lot of those businesses coming through because they're spotting a gap in the market where traditionally the products and services they've had have been built by men and they don't suit them. And so they're kind of building these women-led brands for women. So Those are the sectors where you see a lot more female founders coming through. And some of those have been doing really well in recent times, especially where they're shaking up the market or doing something different. So I've seen a lot of successful women in the fertility, building businesses in the fertility space, in the menopause space, sectors which have not really been addressed properly in the past. Femtech and investors always love things that have got a a tech attached to them. It kind of those are businesses often that are easier to scale. And lots of e-commerce businesses. The challenge, I think, at the moment is in the current climate where we're seeing, you know, a kind of 33% drop off in investment since this time last year. And with a kind of potential recession looming is that investors do tend to then pull back out of those consumer businesses, e-commerce businesses, where they feel there's going to be some pressure coming from the market and redirect their money into more of the kind of B2B space, that's potentially an issue for female founders. And I think also in these these times, you know, investors will put their money into their existing portfolio and into slightly later stage businesses where there are less female founders at that level. So there are some, there are, I think there are some challenges coming. It's very hard to predict, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit worried about it, I have to say. And so how can business owners, do you think, at this point in time, tackle raising investment in the wake of a global economic crisis when investors are likely to be holding on to their cash now more than ever? The bar will just be raised in terms of the quality of entrepreneurs that will be funded. 
ultimately, it's the long-term play. You know, when you are an investor backing a startup at a reasonably early stage, realistically, it's going to be seven to 10 years time before your business will have scaled and be ready to exit. So it's really important to show that long-term, the long-term prospects for your business, to show how you will ride those challenges in the economy and to do your very best in terms of you know, all of the things I mentioned earlier about showing them how this is an investable company, having these incredible forecasts, the communication, your pitch deck needing to be better than ever. You know, we that's where we have to work is all of the elements of fundraising. We just have to work harder to cut through. I think networking is a very important piece in the puzzle. And I think women have traditionally felt that lack of networks has held them back in raising investment. And I, th- I think the pandemic was quite a useful leveler on that front because we moved out of the world of those in-person networking events, which often for a female founder used to feel like you'd walk into a room with a sea of, sea of suits and wonder why on earth you would start. So much moved online, um, which it makes it so much more accessible for women, especially if you're not in in the capital. You know, you can access those those opportunities from wherever you are. It doesn't have to be in the evening when you're trying to put the kids to bed or whatever it is. And, you know, platforms like LinkedIn, which I'm a big fan of, make it easier than ever to connect with investors. And we need to be building those networks out as soon as possible. It doesn't mean that you can't raise investment if you don't have a network already, but it's going to be a slightly tougher call to be building those networks at the point where you need investment. The earlier you build those relationships and start building your confidence around talking with investors and getting their input and being on their radar, the easier it will be to call on them when you need them in these in these difficult times. So I think those those are the things I would focus on now if you were a, a female founder building a high growth business. And it sounds as though we do come back to this idea of building your confidence and exercising that muscle of being able to engage with investors and being able to have the confidence to be in a room that is most likely going to be full of men in suits, potentially, you know, and be able to not be intimidated in those spaces when you are put into them. I'm wondering with your work with female founders, is there a particular doubt or issue that you've seen across many female founders that they tend to have or something that they have to get over that might be holding them back in terms of their perception of themselves as a business person because there are so few female founders in the space and because they know that there are X, Y, Z barriers that they are going to have to overcome. Is there a common thing that you've seen across all, all these business owners? Definitely. There are, there are a few common themes there. Um, and com- confidence is a big one. And a lot of that comes from social conditioning that as women we've experienced you know, throughout our lives about how we should play the game, you know, not being encouraged to take risks perhaps as, the, as much as the boys were, um, to be nice, to not stand out to be careful. (laughs) These things are kind of, they run through our blood. And if you've grown up not seeing those role models of strong women who are going out and doing things, you know, these are, there are a lot of things to overcome there. So certainly confidence and self-belief 
you know, the old one, imposter syndrome, you know, and I know lots of founders experience that. It's not just women, but I do see it from, I could, you know, almost every woman I deal with. And, you know, even the ones who are what everybody else would look at from the outside and go, oh my goodness, that female founder is super successful. But when you talk to them, they are still suffering with that kind of imposter syndrome. I don't deserve to be here. I'm not here. I'm going to get found out any minute. It's a constant battle, I think, for a lot of women to, to overcome that. But there are some pluses about some of these inherent feelings and beliefs we have. Um, you, you hear a lot about women's attitude to risk. Are we risk averse? And I think that is absolutely not the case. I think we are very risk aware, which is a very good thing as a founder to be quite cautious about some of these things. And it's interesting. I think investors are waking up to that. I'm really pleased to hear. If you take, for example, financial forecasts that that get put together, I think um, traditionally male founders can be very bullish to sort of put together these incredibly optimistic forecasts, um, often without having put a huge amount of energy into sense checking all the assumptions. And investors over the years got kind of used to that numbed to it and would just look at the forecast and then kind of go well yeah that's a forecast I'll, I'll cut that by half because I know that that's got a, got a lot of hot air in it and what used to happen is that female founders would put together forecasts in a very very different way right it's very you know realistic very well thought through partly because women you know we don't do things unless we've done them like to 150 percent you know before we're ready to get it out there we're perfectionists but we don't want to let anyone down we're really conditioned on that, not to want to let people down. And so we put these forecasts together that we feel really confident about achieving. What used to happen is investors will look at those and kind of go, oh, it's one of those hot air forecasts. I'll cut it in half. And they'd look at the forecast that a female founder put together and say, well, this isn't a very interesting business. It's not going to scale much. And I think what, what the industry is learning now is that just the way that women approach these things is very different. And they're appreciating that and learning it and seeing the potential and not dismissing those forecasts out of hand some of this stuff is not about women changing at all you know we have to be authentic to who we are but it's sometimes just about stepping into that power and I think for a lot of women that lack of confidence comes from the fact that nobody's ever said to them you've got a great business if you could scale this I believe in you and actually, sometimes that's all a great female founder needs is someone around her to give her that confidence to go for it. But there's a lot, you know, all of that mindset stuff. I can't tell you how important it is. I mean, raising investment, it's probably 90% mindset. You know, having the confidence to do it in the first place, dealing with the challenges and stress of raising investment, which are not insignificant. It's a real roller coaster journey. You get a lot of no's from investors before you get a yes. And you have to learn how to deal with that, how to not take it personally, how to roll with the punches, learn, but keep going and being resilient. And so all of that confidence, resilience, determination, that's all mindset stuff. And if you don't have the mindset stuff right, you can have all the technical stuff you know in the bag you know brilliant financial forecast amazing pitch deck all that kind of stuff but if your mindset's not there none of it's going to come together I just want to just touch on the idea that because businesses are part of the fabric of society we mentioned earlier some statistics but 
For example, only 15% of venture funding goes to female founders and only 6% of scale-up companies are led by women in the first place, which some people would find incredibly astonishing figures. But when there aren't many female business owners, what implications might this have on society in the future? What, what negative implications could this have, do you think? I mean, if, if the businesses of the future are developed, designed and run by men with not enough diversity at top management level, we don't get the best decision making and we don't get the right products and services that are designed to meet a diverse market. That That's the truth of it. Um, I mean, you just have to look at businesses. Like, I mean, I'll, free, I'll, give, I'll give you a great example, you know, in the the, the the condom market, for example, you know, up until very recently, all those kind of prophylactics were all um, coming from big companies run by men, and none of them ever appealed to a woman. Um, they just, I'd say women didn't buy them because it just felt weird. And there are some great businesses coming through. I'm going to give a good mention to Hanks, um, really great business that have, have designed um condoms that are designed for women to buy and it's having such a great impact in the market and women are then feeling empowered to go out and actually buy those products themselves and the difference that makes on society i think is quite phenomenal so that's just one example um and i think you know what we also know is that when women become successful and make money as business leaders they are way more likely to put that money back into their families, put that money back into their communities. And the, the, the social impact that that can have is also really very, very powerful. And it's circular, isn't it? The more women we can get building successful businesses, I also know that those women will be putting that money back into the startup ecosystem because every female entrepreneur I talk to talks about how they have ambitions to invest in startups when they have successfully ex- exited. And, you know, we, we have so few female investors. I mean, in the angel community, it's about 14, 15% of angel investors are women. Imagine a world where we have 50% of angel investors backing, um, being in, um, women. We know that female investors are significantly more likely to put their money into female-led businesses and we can start to solve the problem. But if we just sat back and let this change happen organically, you know, we will still be sitting here in a hundred years time having the conversation. (laughs) So there needs to be more serious action to, to address the systemic issues in the industry if we are going to close that gender funding gap and consequently have the right impact on 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 the economy and society at large thanks julia i just want to touch on because we are coming to the end of the podcast but you help business founders scale their businesses and like we mentioned before we are about to go into a global economic crisis which i think a lot of business founders will be very aware of how they can continue to scale their business whilst potentially having to scale back other areas of their business or being conscious of of things in a way that they haven't had to before. So my question to you is, what can a business owner do to scale their business even during a time of economic crisis? 
for most high growth businesses, they will always need funding. So cutting back on everything will help give, you know, in terms of, you know, if you can cut back on certain areas that will give you a longer runway to go out and raise investment. But unlikely that businesses can survive unless they do get the funding. So I think it's about being aware that as a founder, you will always be fundraising and to give yourself enough time to do that. Too often, I think we leave it too late to go out and get that fundraising round. And a well-run, professionally run fundraise will take about four to six months. I think the reality is when you're in a difficult climate, it might take a little bit longer. You might not raise as much money as you would have hoped. If you've got the opportunity to take funding, take it and take as much as you can <laughs> because you're going to need it to see through the challenging time. So we are eternally optimistic, aren't we, as, as entrepreneurs? Just remember that everything take, takes twice as long and costs twice as much as you think. So be really careful at this time about your scenario planning. Look at best case, most likely case, and also look at worst case. If you can raise more money than you think you need as soon as possible, then do it. Don't wait. But, you know, you always have to be mindful of your costs. But, you know, when you're, when you're building a growing company, if you cut back on all your costs, you can't grow. That's the challenge. And cutting back on your costs is not going to guarantee your survival if you can't then go out and raise investment. So um, it's a fine balance. But always be raising, raise as much as you can and raise it as quickly as you can. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, that's good advice. And I know our listeners will will definitely be able to take that on board, especially during this period of time leading up to the recession. Um, thank you, Julia. That does bring us to the end of the podcast. And with every podcast, we like to finish with a segment called Answer the Internet. And this is where we scour the internet for the questions that the public needs the answers to. And this question is from Reddit. And it's from a user called Leveling Daredevil. And they ask, what are investors in a startup allowed to do? Well, that very much depends on you, the founder, and how you have structured your investment deal. So there are different types of investors that may want different involvements in your startup. If you look at angel investors, some of them are quite happy to give you their money and for you to keep them updated once a quarter and let you get on with it. They're kind of quite arm's length. Some of those investors may want to have a seat on your board and support you and give you advice, but that is within your control to negotiate when you put the deal together. Crowdfunding investors are usually quite arm's length, but they can be super helpful for you in terms of being brand ambassadors for your business. So actually you want to encourage them to do great things to spread the word about your business. And then when it comes to venture capital firms, more likely that they're going to want to have a seat on your board and quite a lot more control around the decisions that you are and aren't allowed to make without them. So it's worth you really researching that and understanding whatever what you're signing up to on a deal in terms of, you know, how much your hands will be tied. So the, the answer to that is not, is not simple. Um, but I think the overriding theme here is it is within your control to negotiate that when you do a deal with an investor. So make sure that you understand when you sign that deal, what those investors are allowed to do. 
Great. Thank you, Julia. That's a really great answer. And next is a question that we ask all of our guests and we are Business Leader magazine. So in your opinion, what makes a great business leader? I think it's about knowing what you're good at and knowing what you're not good at. (laughs) You cannot do it alone. You need to bring other people in. And recognising your strengths and weaknesses, I think, is so critical. That will inform you in terms of the team that you bring on. It will inform you in terms of the investors that you bring on. And bringing on board the very best people is what's going to get you where you want to be. And knowing that, you know, there will be people in your team that are much better than you at all of those things. And that's great. So within that, that kind of understanding of your strengths and weaknesses is, is having that ability to then delegate and empower those people around you to support you in growth. But um, you've got to understand yourself as a leader. So knowing your strengths and weaknesses, I think, is, is a, a really great place to start. Yeah, that's a really good point. Thanks, Julia. And, um, and then to, to finish us off, do you have any final words for our audience today? Well, you know, I've just recently released my book, which is called Raise the Female Founder's Guide to Securing Investment. I honestly, genuinely, from the bottom of my heart, would love any female founder who is in business to read that book as early as possible. It's a very accessible way for you to get your head around this whole world of investment and and be able to look at it with your eyes wide open. And if if you read that and off the back of it, decide that fundraising isn't for you, then that personally for me is a great outcome. You know, that's just as good an outcome as reading it and going, I really want to do this. I feel inspired and I feel like I know the steps that I'm going to need to take when it comes to it. So that would that would be my advice. If a female founder does realise that they don't want to fundraise, what, what would your advice be to them at that point? Well, it depends what the reasons are for them not fundraising. Sometimes that's because... You might not need funding to grow your business. There are lots of ways you can grow a business without having to take on investment. Investment is not the holy grail. You can grow your business organically. It may be that you're you're happy building a business that is a lifestyle business and don't have ambition to scale. There is absolutely nothing wrong with that. Raising for investment isn't for everybody. And there are other routes to funding as well. If you do need money, you know, in terms of debt funding, grant funding. So it's not it's not for everybody. And it's certainly not for the faint hearted. (laughs) That's for sure. And where can our listeners find your book and also yourself on social media? Yeah. So the book is available on Amazon. So you just need to search for Raise, the Female Founder's Guide to Securing Investment. It's available in Kindle, paperback, hardback. I'm sure next year I will do an audio book when I find some time. I would also recommend you check out my podcast, which is called Fundraising Stories with Female Founders. Um, I've interviewed over 60 amazing women over the years who share their warts and all stories about what it's like to raise investments. Super inspiring. And please check out entertherearena.co.uk where you will find loads of great resources about raising investment and you can learn more about the ways that we can support you on that journey if you do decide to go that way. 